Hi, this is Adam, pastor of Faith Methodist Church. We are glad to have you listening to our podcast and joining us this way. Uh, the sermon this morning comes from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And we're addressing the issue of why the resurrection changes everything. Enjoy. And be changed. The word of our Lord from the prophet Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The word of Christ from the Gospel of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. We thank you for it. We thank you for speaking to us and ministering to us through your word. And we ask that you would, that you would draw us to Jesus, that you would fix our eyes upon him, that you would help us to see that he is indeed your Christ, your anointed one, your Messiah. And that through His life, death, and resurrection, He has made a way for us to be saved from sin, from death, and from all of our enemies. We pray in His name. Amen. I promised you last week that we would, this week, address why the resurrection changes everything. A statement that I made back on Easter Sunday morning. The resurrection of Jesus does change everything. It changes, it changes reality, really. It changes creation. It, cre- it changes the trajectory and the, um, the capacity of our lives. It changes everything that, tr- that really matters. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, some of whom were doubting the possibility of resurrection, that if Jesus has not literally, physically, bodily been raised from a literal, physical, and bodily death, that Christian faith is inconsequential and essentially meaningless. He says our faith is vain. It's worthless. It's pointless. Our preaching is vain. Your baptism is vain. None of it matters at all. The whole gospel that we preach 
hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus. And so the question then is, why does the resurrection matter so much? Why does it indeed change everything? The resurrection of Jesus is God's vindication of Him as the Messiah. It is God's proof positive that Jesus was indeed and is indeed who He understood Himself to be. Israel's Redeemer. Israel's Messiah. The Anointed One of God who was supposed to come and to take away the sins of the world and put the world back together. Israel was looking really for a political figure because so much of the language of the prophets was was political or geopolitical type of language. That He'll rescue you from Egypt. He'll rescue, rescue you from the Assyrians, from the Babylonians, from the Persians. He will call you out. And so Israel was so fixated upon their life circumstance, their, their historical circumstance. They're living under Rum, Roman oppression, living amongst the Greco-Roman people. They have a kingdom, but it's not really theirs. It's under Rome's thumb. And so when they're looking for a Messiah, they're looking primarily for one who can set them free from that problem. The immediate and the immediacy of what seems like most urgent in their lives, Roman oppression. And so when they find this man, Jesus, who is who, who seems to be the Messiah and claims to be the Messiah, one who's working miracles, one who's restoring sight to the blind, one who's raising up those who are lame, giving life back to those even who have died. He's speaking new creation into existence as He speaks healing into people's lives, as He rubs mud on His hands and restores sight. He's doing the works of new creation. He's the one who's walking out on the waters And the disciples are terrified. There's only one who's ever walked on the waters. The Spirit of the living God who brooded over the face of the deep. And so they see in Jesus one who is bringing order out of chaos. One who's bringing and speaking and using His hands to bring about new creation right before their very eyes. But Israel wants more than new creation. They want one who can put Rome in its place. And so when they find that Jesus has come not yet to restore the kingdom to Israel, not yet to put Rome in its place, but that judgment will come when they see that that is the purpose of His coming. Not to do those things that are immediate and urgent to their experience, but those things that are most important to their experience. Forgiving sins raising up the deadness of our lives, recreating our souls after His image. When they see that is the purpose of His coming, they reject Him. They want someone who will deal with Rome. And so they miss Him. The Apostle Paul though to the Philippians, 
said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, note this, he did not count equality with God, you will be like God. A thing to be grasped. Paul, I think, is alluding to the grasping hands of Adam and Eve. Hearing the lie of the serpent, you'll be like God. You do what you want to do. You be you. You'll be like God. And they grasped. He says, no, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, he comes as a new Adam, a second Adam, a final Adam. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Adam and Eve took from, has become the tree, as the disciples spoke of it in the New Testament, the tree of the cross, the tree of life even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, because of this, because of what Christ has done and in our behalf and us by faith through Him, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess what? that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says that it's in the resurrection and then the consequences of that resurrection, the outworking, his ascension to the Father, his exaltation to the Father's right hand. It's as a result of that that God has vindicated Christ and made him the Lord the Lord over all, the sovereign King. The resurrection of Jesus is not just some thing that happened. It's not some blip on the, on the, 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 the storied radar of salvation events. The resurrection of Jesus is everything. It is everything that vindicates the life and death of Jesus prior to it, and it's everything that declares Him to be Lord of all eternity to us as a consequence. But something else has happened in the resurrection. In Jesus, confirmed in the resurrection, in Jesus, God has begun a new humanity. He has begun a new human race, a new humankind in the life, death, and resurrection of His incarnate Son, Jesus. The Apostle Paul told the Romans that Adam was a type of Jesus. A kind of a shadow or a reflection of a prototype. He was a type of Jesus who Paul says to the Romans was to come. So get this, in Paul's theology, Jesus becoming incarnate was going to happen. 
An atom is made as a reflection of, an image of the incarnate Son. You know you're created in the image of God. And you know that Christ, according to Paul, is the image, the seeable image of the unseeable, the invisible God. So Paul says, Adam was a type of Jesus who was to come. Not the other way around. Not as though Jesus was some redo. Jesus, it seems, was Jesus, the incarnate Son, was God's plan all along, it seems. Paul tells the Corinthians, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This beginning of a new humanity is what the incarnation of Jesus was all about. It's what His life was all about. That's why the Gospel writers, those that don't give us the, uh, the genealogies and birth story, that's why the Gospel writers begin with, with John proclaiming the kingdom is coming and Jesus comes, He's baptized, uh, familiarizing Himself with our experience and He's immediately led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, out of the garden to be tempted. And it's after that time of temptation that Jesus begins His public ministry, proclaiming the kingdom has come. Jesus is reenacting human history in His very life. A new humanity is what the incarnation and the life of Jesus are all about. It's all about Him creating a new way of being human. A new way for our race. Therefore, according to John, according to Paul, and all the writers of the New Testament, New life is available to us by joining ourselves to Jesus. This new Adam, this second Adam, this final Adam. By joining ourselves to Him in faith, we participate in His saving acts. And new life is given to us as we trust in Him, as we put our faith in Him, as we join ourselves up to Him, we have new life in Him. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation has begun in his life if anyone is in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Remember, Jesus is the one who makes all things new, as John the Revelator said. Paul tells the Colossians, he says, You have been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith. 
Again, notice your prepositions. I think it was Ken, Ken Law, I think he said, um, salvation rests in the prepositions. It's all about prepositions. You didn't know this, but all of, all of reality is about grammar. <laughs> he said, John, uh, uh, Paul says, you have been buried with him in baptism. Baptism is about you participating with him by faith. He says, then, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The scriptures would have us know that if we will trust in Jesus, if we will put our faith in Him, if we will believe He is who He says He is, which is vindicated by His victorious resurrection, if we do that, then we get the benefits of what He has done in our behalf. Because what He has done in our behalf becomes something that we ourselves also participate in through faith. Question is, what does it mean to believe? Because John says that's why the whole gospel is given to us. He's speaking specifically about his record, but he says Jesus, of course, did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe something that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that of consequence, something might happen in your life. That by believing, you may have life in His name. So the question is, what does it mean biblically to believe? What is John looking for us to trust in? To agree with? To believe means to be convinced of your need for Him. To be convinced that I'm lost without Him. That I'm broken without Him. That there is indeed a sin problem. John in his first epistle in the New Testament says, if you say you've got no sin problem, then you're calling God a liar. Because He said, you've got a sin problem. So the first step of believing is being convinced that we have a need. Being convinced that we need a Redeemer, that we need a Savior. But belief is more than just that. Because to believe only that is to live in despair. It's to, it's to live as the life as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7. Who in the world can save me from this body of death? It's to live as John Wesley did when he was 35, 34 
years, I think he was 34, when he was 34 years old, and he said, I went to the Americas to save the Indians, but who in the world will save me? He was an ordained minister. Living in despair. Being convinced of his need, but not having a clue what the cure was. To believe also means to be convinced of His ability to save. So step one, I need saving. Step two, God can save me. But you've got to be convinced of more than just that God can save you. Because the third, the third piece of biblical faith is to be convinced of His desire to save. Not only can God save me, but He wants to save me. He wants to put my life back together. He wants to heal my broken heart. He wants to make all things new in my life. But all of that, notice, every bit of that, every bit of that is just about our minds. And salvation doesn't just happen in the mind. All of that is intellectual capacities and affirmations that I have and can make. I need to be healed. God can heal me. He wants to heal me. I'm not yet healed. There's more. Biblical faith demands a desire within us that matches with His desire. To desire what He desires. He wants to heal me. He can heal me. Do I want to be healed? Do I want to trust Him? That's not it. Because we don't save ourselves. But our will is very much a part of the saving act. Our will must interact with His will if we're ever to be saved. Our hearts, our desires must be surrendered to His if salvation is ever to come. I remember uh, now Dr. Lorstorfer, we always called him Brother Chris because we grew up around him. Uh, Lorstorfer, he used to say that, um, he probably still says it, and he probably got it from somebody else, um, that the God who made you apart from yourself will not save you apart from yourself. God insists He will not heal you if you don't want to be healed. And the sad news is, the bad news is, that there are some who simply don't want to be healed. They want to be left alone. It was C.S. Lewis writing The Great Divorce, talking about his hero, uh, one of his faith fathers, George MacDonald, the Presbyterian Scottish minister. Uh, in that fictional dream, that Lewis is playing out, McDonald says, the motto of hell is leave me to myself. And the problem is that that is the motto of many of our hearts. We just want to be left alone, even by God. So we have to desire what He desires. But finally, what does it mean to believe? It means to rest in Him by grace through faith. We have to actually trust Him to do it. Not just acknowledge that we have a need, not just acknowledge that He can meet that need, 
Not just acknowledge that He wants to meet that need and not even desire that He would meet that need, but we have to actually put ourselves in the care of the great physician. We have to actually rest in Him by grace through faith. We have to trust Him to do it. And we speak of that in a number of ways. It has to do with surrendering our lives to His Lordship. Saying that, hey, if He is indeed Lord of all things, if He is indeed the Creator and the Redeemer of all things, I want Him to be Lord of my life. I want Him to to be the Creator and Recreator and Redeemer of my life. And so I surrender my life to Him. We talk about giving your life to Christ. And that's what we're talking about. It's more than just making a commitment. And it's more than just praying a prayer. It's about actually giving our lives to Jesus and trusting Him. Trusting Him with every bit of who we are. We talk about inviting Him into our hearts. Remember, the heart is the control center of our lives. It's where all of our deciding is done, where all of our it's it, it, it's it's out of our hearts that every bit of our lives come. And so, in talking about inviting Jesus into our hearts, we're talking about bringing Him into the core of who we are, the core of our personality, the center. Lord Jesus, come. Come within and save me from everything within and everything without. This, again, is the whole purpose of John's Gospel. The whole thing. To enable us to believe Jesus so that we might have new life in Him. You might want to think of it this way. Jesus participated with us in death so that we might participate with Him in life. Jesus experienced all of what it is to be human. He endured temptation. He endured our frailty. He even submitted Himself to dependence upon others. You think the baby Jesus could feed Himself? If so, you have a very unbiblical and unchristian understanding of the Incarnation. Jesus participated in every facet of human existence so that we might trust Him and participate in the redemption that He offers us. So the Scriptures would have us know that those who do trust in Him are adopted into the family of God. We are brought in. We were once outsiders and now we've been brought into the family. This is what the Scriptures call the new birth. The regeneration of our souls, our hearts and our lives. We are made new, recreated in Jesus and brought in by Him. Welcomed into the family of God. And being born again changes the trajectory of our lives, but not just the trajectory or direction of our lives, but also the totality of our lives begins to be changed. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything about reality and about humanity, which means that it can also change every bit of your life and every bit of mine. 
The risen Jesus can change your reality. He can change your humanity. I know this because He changed mine. This past Friday, David, it's May 24th. You know what's significant about May 24th? You know, it's it's in that head somewhere. It was Aldersgate Day. The day commemorating John Wesley's new birth. 34 years old, an Anglican priest, ordained and serving God faithfully, even been on a mission trip for a couple years before it. And in his journal, dated the 24th of January, 1738, Wesley's on a boat headed back to England from America. And he wrote this, My mind was full now of thought, part of which I wrote down as follows, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who? What is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of mischief? I have a fair summer religion. I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near. But let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled, nor can I say to die is gain. Four months to the day, David. Four months. He continued in his journal. 24th of May, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly. (laughs) I love his honesty. I didn't want to go, but I was asked to go. I felt like I needed to go. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. If that's not boring, I don't know what would be. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I began to pray with all my might for those who had in a more more especial manner despitefully used me and persecuted me. I then testified openly to all who were there what I now first felt in my heart. You know what ends up happening? Long story short, revival began to break out all throughout England. And eventually, the Methodist church was born in and through the ministry of John and Charles Wesley and their ragtag band of brothers. Some historians say that England itself was saved from a bloody revolution like what happened in France because of the ministry of John and Charles Wesley, because of sermons and hymns. Why? Because of what happened on a Wednesday night, the 24th of May in 1738, at 8.45 p.m. London time. 
God made all things new in the life of Wesley. And that opened up possibilities for all things to be made new in and around him and even throughout England. In the lives of countless thousands of people who Wesley would minister to. The Apostle Paul plainly insists, without the resurrection of Jesus, the entirety of Christian religion, everything we do, everything we preach, every good we do, every song we sing, every bit of it is meaningless without the resurrection. But Jesus has been raised. And His resurrection changes everything. The question before us is, will we trust Him today to change us? He can do that. He wants to do that. Will you trust Him for it? Father, we pray that You would come in a powerful way. We pray that You would raise up what is dead in our lives. That You would help us to surrender ourselves completely to Your Son, Jesus. Lord, help us to trust Him. Help us to see in Him in His life, His death, and His resurrection, Your vindication that He is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, Your Son. Your Son who came to put this world back together and who for our lives can put the lives of our worlds, the the, the lives of our hearts back together. Lord, we pray that You would send Your Spirit even now in this moment to breathe over the chaos and disorderliness of our lives and to re-breathe in us the breath of life so that we might be made new. So that every part of who we are might be transformed and reformed after the image of Jesus. Father, help us to trust You to do it. In the name of Your Son we pray. Amen. Alright, let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth, Creator of all things, Redeemer of all things, Sustainer of all things, we love You. We worship You. We rejoice in You and celebrate Your good presence with us on this good morning. You are holy and good, always faithful and full of mercy. As we gather together, In the name of Jesus, thank You for meeting us here. Thank You for sending Your Spirit 
as we've together sung songs and lifted prayers and trust, we've read from Your Holy Word. We thank You for ministering to us in this holy gathering. (coughs) Help us, we pray, to better know You and to more completely love You. Jesus, as You have implanted Your kingdom into the soil of our hearts, please grow Your kingdom among us. And through the fruit of Your grace in our lives, we pray that Your kingdom would come. Holy Spirit, as we prepare to leave this holy place, please help us to surrender our hearts and our lives fully to You so that You may work through us in the lives of others. O holy and triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we love You. You've been good to us. Your mercies have been new each morning. And we thank You for how faithful You've been. Lord, we thank You for little baby Nathan and little baby Caleb. We thank You for David and Christy being able to go to Kentucky and spend some time with Charlotte, Dan, and the grandkids up there. We thank You for allowing Christy to spend some extra time up there being of help and being able to hold this precious little one. Lord, we thank You for bringing her home safely. Lord, You know every concern that we have. You know every need that we have. You know all those things that weigh upon us. You know our every worry. We pray that You would help us to trust You in all of these things. Lord, we pray for the Ferrans as they travel today. Get them home safely. Help them to know that we miss them. Lord, be with the Hedgepeths as they spend a couple of days at the beach. We pray that You would help them to know we miss them and bring them home safe after they have a, a wonderful time of rest and vacation together. Lord, we lift up Andrew to You and thank You for the interview opportunity he had. We pray that You would open the right doors for him. And Lord, we pray that You might make a way for this to be a right door. Lord, we lift up Miss Margie to You, Miss Davies to You, and we pray Your blessings on them and their families. Lord, we thank You for the love that You've given our kids for Miss Emily Smith. And we pray You continue to bless her and continue to bless them so that they might be a blessing to her. Lord, bear fruit in her life there in Japan. Lord, we love You because You first loved us and gave Your Son for us. Oh God, You have prepared for those who love You such good things as surpass our understanding. Please pour into our hearts such love toward You that we loving You in all things and above all things may obtain Your promises which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever we pray. Amen.
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May we go in the blessing of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please check out our website at faithmethodistchurch.org.